Hi out there, this is Mark Curran, your host of Cross-Examination. We're so happy to be coming to you today with our special guest, Pat Canelli. You're listening to WSFI Catholic Radio, 88.5 FM, WNDZ, 750 AM. Patrick Canelli, the state's attorney of McHenry County, the fifth largest county in Illinois, right, mm-hmm. Pat? Yep. Pat's been in office. He's, he's coming up on the end of his second term, so seven years as the state's attorney of McHenry County. Pat has done a terrific job. He's a great state attorney for those of you out in the McHenry County area you're very very blessed to have Pat Canelli as your state's attorney Pat welcome thank you very much for having me I love WSFI I love this program I love you you're the paragon Aww, of you. you know Catholic courage especially in the political arena so thank you so much for having me Great to have you. Let's just introduce you first to the listeners a little bit you've been on before you basically a Catholic school guy. Sacred Heart and when so, I, uh, my parish I went to public school and uh, I did go to a Catholic college to College of Holy Cross and then I uh, matriculated further to Wash U in St. Louis where I graduated in 2005. Yeah that's in Wash U is a top law school one of the top in the country. When you got out of, out of uh, law school you went initially you went to work for who? I initially went to work for Judge Maddox downtown. He was the chief of the civil of the law division of Cook County. I had, I sort of originally had thought that I wanted to sort of follow in my father's step, uh, footsteps of doing civil work downtown. Everything was sort of geared towards getting back to Chicago. I met my wife, who was a social worker at Northwestern Hospital at the time, and we began dating and were eventually engaged. Uh, and then I sort of said to myself, like, you know what I want to do? I want to be a public defender in Cook County. And so uh, I began that process of applying for that, and I got it. And it was right at that time that our former uh, and uh, much venerated, I'm saying that with sarcasm, Governor uh, Governor Blagojevich sort of cut the budget in Illinois. Him and Mike Madigan were having a kerfuffle down in Springfield and the budget had and so the and so the public defender's office i guess was just not funded so they called me and they're like hey you know you we 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 got a job for you it's waiting it just it could be six weeks it could be six months it could be a year we just don't know so at the time i was living you know in my parents in my childhood bedroom at my parents house and i said well i got to get the heck out of here so i just started applying to places and uh, i got a job interview in McHenry county and I said to myself, where's McHenry County? Um, but I eventually found out as I went up there, I got the job and my thinking was, well, I'll just do this for two years because there was sort of this understanding in the, it, it's not so much present anymore, but there's this understanding, I think, uh, in the legal field where like, you know, everybody wants to hire state's attorneys. They're the guys that get into the courtrooms. They're the guys that learn how to talk on their feet, handle themselves in front of a judge. And so my thinking was, well, I could just flip this job in McHenry County back to a lucrative civil job in uh, Cook County. And so let me do this for two years and then I'll come back. And I've sort of said farewell to the Cook County state's attorney's office. But uh, that's not what the good Lord had in store for me. So Bill Maddox, Jambo, and Schwartz was was the firm that he was with before. Yep. Bill Maddox was a roommate of Phil Donahue, the, the longtime TV uh, show. He was the mayor of Boys Town, too. Yeah, Bill Maddox went to, went to Boys Town in Omaha, exactly mm-hmm. right. He was the oldest serving judge in Cook County. He, he challenged them on a lawsuit and was able to stay on the bench, and he's still alive. I want to start out with talking about uh, what's going on with regards to the concept of, of prosecutorial discretion and what your thoughts are on President Trump as we as we sit here today, the New York District Attorney, this District Attorney and State's Attorney are the exact same thing, for those of you that don't know. The New York District Attorney for, I believe, Manhattan, is in the process of indicting President Trump and People have seen the Justice Department, state's attorney's office, district attorneys, U.S. attorney's offices weaponized for some time. I mean, what's going on with that, and what are your thoughts? So I think prosecutorial discretion is probably the most important and critical component of the justice system. Just sort of stepping back and thinking about the concept, when justice is not sort of the mechanical application of the law and everybody can sort of see this intuitively if so for example if there was a woman who went to the grocery store and she was impoverished and was doing her best in good faith to try to provide for her children but just simply didn't have the money and stole bread or stole food if somebody like me came in and said well you know uh 
this is specifically the crime that you committed and these are the penalties and we're going to mete out the penalties irrespective of the circumstances or the conditions, then then that's not necessarily justice. So justice is a fine-grained process and every case has to be handled on its own merits and the context is so important and no computer can do that, no law book can do that, no law treatise can do that rather. It actually takes a human person of goodwill to actually apply prosecutorial discretion in the right way. So prosecutorial discretion in many instances means um, having empathy and having sympathy and actually trying to work through the criminal process for the betterment of the person who is the subject of the prosecution, whether that person is suffering from substance abuse, whether that person is suffering from um, lack of opportunities, impoverishment, whatever the case may be. And as a Catholic prosecutor, I mean, I think we're certainly called to try to make the lives of those people who end up ensnared in the criminal justice system better one way or the other. In addition to that, you often run into people, and so you sort of take the example of who was the gangster in Chicago that got busted on taxes? What was his name? Capone. Yeah, Al Capone. So you take sure. Al Capone. So you sort of have this understanding that Al Capone is this horrible person who is this insidious force within society. And while by virtue of the fact that he had so insulated himself and done such a good job with his criminal organization that he was essentially immune from prosecution for what we really wanted to get him on, which was murder and mayhem and rape and gambling, whatever the case may be, by virtue of the fact that you know um, and, and know with a moral certainty that this is a person who is a clear and present danger to society, you can use prosecutorial discretion with respect to other lesser charges, but attempt to sort of ratchet up the penalties to try to, to, try to go after those people. Now, with respect to President Trump, it appears as though that's the latter. So you have somebody who has been so vilified, demonized, and hated with such a passion why do you think that is um i think i mean i I think it's the juxtaposition between president trump and the manner in which he handles himself and president obama you know um i think there were so many people that had that had idealized and characterized president obama as sort of this epitome of presidential what's the word sort of class or sort yeah. of like this a pit and along comes president trump who um in who who appears to be motivated singularly by self-interest and power and all the rest of it yeah um and so the when when it's a when there's just this almost instinctual hatred of the guy from from people yeah. who, who do sort of um for, for the most part, associated. It's very true what you just said. That so, President Obama, for example, my brother Anthony's got seven kids. He lives in the city, and his uh, one of his children played soccer on the same team with President Obama's daughter, the older daughter. And he would go up to President Obama when he was then State Senator Obama and then U.S. Senator Obama, and talk to him. And he said he was the most charming guy. And my brother Anthony will be the first to tell you that President Obama's politics are nothing other than evil. Mm-hmm. So it's really, you know, yet President Trump, who seems to manage in a way that, that's very consistent with our faith. And, and he and just says it. We have so normalized corruption within our governmental process. So just think about the state of Illinois. You know what I mean? Think about what happened to President Trump in terms of the 2020 election. You have a guy... One guy who ha- who is one of the richest people in the country, and the Facebook guy, spend over $500 million to do everything in his power and change the nature of our voting practices to get rid of President Trump. Look at the state of Illinois. I mean, you have, you have a governor who, in terms of merit, think about the idealized way that you want people to be our leaders. Number one, you don't want somebody that wants to be a leader to be your leader. But number two, you want them to sort of have arisen from a place based on their own merit and demonstrated that they are a person who's capable of climbing the hierarchical structures of whatever's put in front of them, whether it's business, whether it's government, whether it's otherwise. You have somebody that just jumped the line simply by virtue of the fact that they are the richest person in the state and then they become governor and we all just sort of accept that. And then they spend money in order to become governor and they become you know, he's, he's kind of a unique guy, Pritzker, in the sense that we've had other people that have tried to buy offices in the past, but they weren't successful. I would submit to you that I think that 
you know, and once again, his politics, from my perspective, are basically evil. But I think he's a charming guy, and I think people underestimate him, and, and he knows how to connect the dots and who he needs and, you know, and everything else. I don't think he just wrote a check. I mean, he, because I, I've seen these people over the years that wrote ridiculous checks, like Blair Hall ran for U.S. Senate and just spent, uh, you know, millions and millions and millions, way more than the rest of the field, and he, he stuck at 10%. I think that there's something about Pritzker's not a dummy, is what I would say. No, I don't think Pritzker's a dummy, but he's also mad, isn't he? Yeah. Like, does he doesn't strike me as the most charming person. Every time he speaks, it just sort of strikes me as somebody who's so well handled and so well sort yeah. of groomed, and everything is off of some. He's a divider. Kind of he's a divider. Exactly. He's he's with the left. And he with doesn't care to, to be in the buying, middle. With regard to people buying offices, I don't think yeah. we've ever seen the amount of money yeah. that, that Governor Pritzker spent. I mean, right. I'm talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, prosecutorial discretion is something that uh, you know we looked at most recently the Murdoch murders and what have you and how all that that family seemed to be able to get away with all those years Uh, do you see a deep state in uh, your you know circles as a prosecutor and you don't see a a, a deep state sense where people got away with something maybe not where you are state's attorney right now but in the past have you heard stories about how past sheriffs and what have you people get away with everything yeah. Based on their name? Yes. So one of the things that I found getting into government is there are just so many temptations on a day-to-day basis to use your power in small ways that then can aggregate into something bigger or that just sort of gets you off of the right and narrow to the point where you sort of corrupt yourself and then begin to abuse your power in worse and worse ways. That being said, the fact that we have the criminal justice system, which is essentially local authority, uh, I think is far and away the best way uh, to handle these types of situations because the criminal justice system has a monopoly on force, right? We're the only ones who can sort of legally use force uh, in society. And so you want you want to decentralize that as much as possible so that it's closest to the hands of the voters. And in order to get power closest to the hands of voters, you have to localize it. And so if I am abusing my authority, the, bet, the people who are going to know about that first and the people are, who are going to be in a position to do something yeah, about that are going to be people in McHenry County. I, I, I love what you just said, and, and you know, I want to get to that in a minute and talk about the FBI and, and prosecution on, on a federal level, but uh, an investigation on a federal level. But first I want to talk to you about something that has always interested me from a Catholic perspective, and that is... You're now the head of this office, a very big office, uh, very big county, and you hire people. And I'm going to take you back through my experience as a prosecutor, and I was a prosecutor for 13 years. And when I had offers from both the Cook County and the Lake County State's Attorney's Office, and I decided to go to Lake County because I thought it would be a quicker path to trying really important cases like murders and, and what have you, and it wound up being. When I was down there in Cook County, they used to have a contest. What was the worst thing that you could call the defendant in a closing argument and get away with? And you'd, you'd hear, you know, all these animal names that somebody so-and-so said called the defendant by. The judge would merely scold them or what have you. And years later, all their cases started getting reversed. This was written about by the Tribune for a long period of time. They used to have uh, the defendants down in Markham weighed before they went to DOC is they tried to see who could get the, you know, pound for pound, who was getting the most, sending the most people for to DOC. And, you know, you have all kinds of stories like this, and it truly was, when I was in, at 26 and Cal back in the 80s, it was, you know, 97% white prosecutors. There were, you know, a lot of women, you know, but, but not, no uh, minorities. When I interviewed with the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, they clearly wanted a certain mindset. And I remember a good friend of mine who worked there uh, for a long time and and a long-time first assistant, he used to talk about how they were walking out of the courtroom one time and he held the door for the public defenders. And the first assistant went nuts on him. Why would you hold the door for them? So I'm getting into the mindset. And one of the questions that you had to answer right when I was interviewed with by 26 in California, Cook County State's Attorney's Office for a job was, you had to answer that you were in favor of the death penalty. Otherwise, yeah. you were right, you were immediately bonged. Tell me about it. What are you looking for? And I'll tell you what this has led to, folks that are out there. 
I've seen just some horrible people that wound up being state's attorneys, assistant state's attorneys over the years that could care less. I remember doing a big uh, gang trial um, where it was Latin lovers and the Latin kings shooting at each other and people got killed and we went to trial. And the assistant that I tried the case with was one of the most racist guys and he had bean trial written all over his files. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, the jury sees that. <laughs> we're we're going to be in trouble. I mean, these guys did it, but, you know, how about toning it down a little bit? So I'm interested in your thoughts on what are you looking for in terms of, of a potential assistant state's attorney that is going to be moral in the way that they handle that power? I mean, you you can't divorce the system from the people. Like, you can't devise a system of government or a prosecutorial office or a criminal justice system that can function if you don't have decent people who are working within it. One of my critiques about many of sort of the quote-unquote reformers of the criminal justice system is that they just ignore the fact that over the last 50 years, in addition to bad actors, there's also been a number of wonderful people of goodwill who have devoted their lives to the criminal justice system, its reformation, and its betterment. I consider myself, I, well, I, I consider myself as somebody who aspires to be one of those people and who have done everything that they can within the criminal justice system to try to balance all the competing interests that the criminal justice system has to sort of take on and to do that and mete out justice in uh, a fair, impartial, and equitable way. So when it comes to the state's attorney's office, yeah, I mean, the moral makeup of an assistant state's attorney is probably far and away the most important attribute that I'm looking for as a state's attorney. So what I consider my job as doing and what my successor told me the first day I worked at, I thought he was going to give me like a big book of uh, regulations and guides and, um, you know, how to be a state's attorney. But he sat me down. He looked me in the eyes. He said, you know what your job is as state's attorney? Your job, one and only thing always do the right thing. And that was it. That was the only thing that he told me because you have to be guided by your moral compass. You have to be guided by your conscience when you're seeking justice because ultimately if you're ordered correct as a human being, if you're ordered towards the other, you're going to be able to mete out justice in the appropriate way. So when I'm looking at state, when I'm talking to state's attorney, I said, look, you have the opportunity to have the best job any lawyer can conceivably and possibly have because all that you have to do is get up every single morning and do the right thing. The only thing that you have to do is try to right the wrongs that have occurred in this county and to try to make the lives of those around you better. And that includes everybody involved in the criminal justice system from the victims all the way to the defendant. So our job is to be a lawyer and to be tough and to carry a big stick and to use it every once in a while. But on the other hand, our job is to be a social worker. It's really weird how society's gotten flipped upside down and that there is no evil anymore. There's no bad guys. You know, I was watching that murder of the police officer get dragged into court this, I think it was like yesterday for his arraignment. I reflect back on the days when I was in the state's attorney's office in, in Cook and Lake. And like I said, Cook was like the 80s. And if there was a cop murder, every seat in the courtroom was packed. They were standing out in the hallway hoping to get inside somehow. And the state's attorney, as he walked through the crowd, what have you, he had to feel like, you know, a, a football player running out of the tunnel as the crowd was going nuts. I mean, it, it just had to be such a high that you are on the side of what's right. And you are at the epicenter of what's important. And the public defender, they have a, a, an oath that they take and a duty to, to uh, zealously represent their client. That is the, uh, the visiting team, I mean, as far as that place. And you were made to feel like, God bless you, thank you for standing up for what's right. That's not the way people see things as much uh, today, is it? No, and the, the thing that I guess what I've learned um, about especially evil with regard to the prosecution of crimes is there are deeply broken evil people that do horrible things for for evil reasons, and I don't mean evil reasons like mental illness or lack of socialization or whatever. I mean, ev- I mean existential evil reasons. They have a, a form of archetypal evil, which is in their heart, and that's why they do uh, these horrible things, and that's the only explanation I've come up with. But in the, that's such a small percentage of the cases, and 99% of the time, the evil that exists in the heart of a quote-unquote criminal is uh, selfishness, and laziness yeah and it is just like the most humdrum form 
of uh, yeah. human imperfection that you see. And it's not as though these people are that you can just sort of cast them into prison. There's certainly hope with all of them, but they need a significant maturation process. And a lot of times the criminal justice system, when we get our hands on people for a year or 18 months, is just not enough time to change their heart. So you're listening to WSFI Catholic Radio 88.5 FM, WNDZ 750 AM. Our guest is Patrick Kennelly, the longtime McHenry County State's Attorney. And I'm Mark Kern, your host. The show is Cross-Examination. So, Pat, let me ask you a little bit about, um, you know, prosecutions on a, on a bigger level. Now, historically, virtually all crime was prosecuted at the state level. And that's the way that the drafters of the Constitution, the founders of this country, envisioned it. Tenth Amendment, Reserve Clause, those powers not expressly stated or reserved for the states, specifically police powers. And then in 1970, the federal government passed the RICO statutes, allowing them to go after mobs by using the Commerce Clause. And eventually they started passing more and more statutes, giving themselves more and more criminal authority. They, they still don't have as much authority as the states. 99% of all crimes are still prosecuted at the state level. But the, the federal government and the federal justice department the fbi have really gotten a black eye lately how much of that is deserved and what are your concerns when working with them well i I, as a catholic i was shocked and astonished at the recent memo with regard to what appears to be them targeting pro-life groups etc i think um there was in the fbi a radicalization of the fbi in response to donald trump i think that there were fears of many on uh, the left side of the political aisle uh, that Donald Trump was going to attempt some sort of insurrection. And, uh, you know, that sort of began when he, I think in a press conference, there said, like, if you lose, will you peacefully transfer power? And he said, we'll see or something like that. And so I think there was a lot of people within the FBI, as well as other forms of government that took that kind of thing seriously. And so they began based on, I think, probably their own sense of patriotism, also guided by partisan politics, which seems to have infected uh, everything right down to how people act and think. Um, I think they began to plan for that. The problem with the FBI is sort of what I talked about earlier, which is they lack sort of this provincialism, which is when you centralize power, uh, especially the power to use force and throw people in jail, and then you combine that with a acutely partisan setting that we all live in, the whole idea that something can't go wrong is absurd. Yeah, they have a lot of authority that that state justice entities do not have. For example, it's much easier for them to get eavesdropped. They have a lot broader laws. So they have the year of Congress where they're constantly passing laws to give themselves more power, even though, you know, like a murder case, they have no authority to prosecute a murder. They have no authority to prosecute most crimes because they don't affect commerce, which is really the only way that they can pass a a statute giving the federal government criminal authority, but nonetheless they have it. Do you think that there's not enough oversight of them, or or what is it? It seems like all the eyes are focused on local, but they kind of get away with doing whatever they want. They pick and choose. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there is a lack of oversight, and then you also couple that with, the, you know, it's always easy for, you know, and I think law enforcement did it for a long time, is they'd always go back to the well of, hey, we're law enforcement, we demand more money, and we demand support, and every politician over the last 30 years, up until sort of recent times, was able to say, you know, we're getting tough on crime, and we're going to support our police, and so most of the demands, most of the requests by law enforcement, whether from local government all the way up to the FBI, have been sort of complied with and acquiesced to. So you you definitely have that from an FBI standpoint. I think that still exists in Washington. And I think now that uh, many people who are left of center have begun viewing the FBI somewhat as as an ally in many of the political goals that they have. uh, Yeah, there there is a lack of oversight in any type of bureaucracy, especially one as powerful as the FBI. But, you know, my experience with the FBI um, and I've had a few experience with regard to them on investigations is that on an individual level, it's made up of wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah, I worked with Good Sachs. That would be special agent in charge. They are very vertically oriented. There's the FBI agents on the ground, from what I saw, 
don't have as much discretion as, let's say, a normal police officer. Rather, before they do something, before they act, before they make a decision, they often uh-huh. have to conference call it. And so it's uh, so I sort of described it as a corporate law enforcement. So, Pete, I want to talk to you about what's going on in Illinois, how we're basically not locking anybody up or <laughs> very few people locking up as though, you know, there is no such thing as evil. And what your thought is on that. You mentioned earlier that, you know, most of these criminals are either, you see either selfishness or laziness. And it's interesting that you say that. When I was a prosecutor and I was assigned a case, the first thing I did was try to think, what is the theme of this case? Because when you're a trial lawyer, you're trying to tell this jury a story. That's how they can follow it. Otherwise, they're going to zone out. And so I would go through the seven deadly sins and think of which one of those motivated this crime. Was it pride, lust? Envy, anger, greed, gluttony, sloth. And then I would make sure that I repeated that theme throughout the trial so that people could follow along easily enough. Now, with Illinois, we just just think that, that these people should just, you know, commit crime, go back out on the street, commit crime again, and then go back out on the street and never really face any consequences. That seems to be the direction. Yeah, it's a, it's a, disordered form of thinking and it kind of stems from this new age philosophy where it's ultimately it's it's the criminal justice system which is either systemically problematic systemically racist systemically unfair and so the fruits of the criminal justice system or the outputs of the criminal justice system are also inherently flawed inherently uh, or systemically racist so uh, if so like if you're a critical theorist or if you're let's say Kim Fox what you would say is something to the effect of this is that look criminal justice system is not what you think it is it's not here to sort of serve and protect you or to reach just decisions and punish people accordingly rather the criminal justice system is the working arm of a hierarchical society where that is that's attempting to maintain social structures and so the criminal justice system necessarily is geared towards oppressing and marginalizing people in poor communities people of certain ethnicities or races etc because the whole idea is that you want to maintain the status quo so when you know people of certain races people of certain ethnicities people in certain neighborhoods are then picked up and uh, brought and sort of brought into the criminal justice system and punished in prison or whatever the case may be they're necessary responses of course you see it's not necessarily what this person did rather the only thing that the criminal justice system is trying to do is trying to help those people sort of maintain power so of course if that's your view then anything the criminal justice system is going to do is going to be corrupt and you're going to try to limit the use of the criminal justice system as much as you can and so that's essentially what's been happening and then when you sort of add on all of this horrible thinking about these horrible effects of the drug war quote unquote then when you're talking about drug offenses, when you're talking about property crime offenses, again, you're going to sympathize not necessarily with the business owner who had their stuff taken, not necessarily with the brother or mother who lost their son to a drug overdose, but with the person, of course, who is being sort of quote unquote persecuted by the criminal justice system. And that's a major problem. And that's a thinking flaw. Uh, and it's, and the, the problem with it is that it's just simply not true. So you're listening to WSFI Catholic Radio 88.5 FM, WNDZ, 7.50 AM. The show is cross-examination. Mark Curran, I'm your host, and our guest is the McHenry County State's Attorney, Patrick Canelli. Having a great show. I hope you've been enjoying it out there. So, uh, Pat, I want to ask you a little bit about another area that that you practice in, and that is... uh, you were in, in, involved in environmental aspect of, of being a lawyer. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I guess I could just give a little th- background just on sort of my faith process, but probably like the first spiritual experiences I ever had was just up at Lake Geneva with my family. And you'd be out, we'd, we'd get a boat and we'd go out on the lake and it would be dusk and the shadows would sort of be extending. And you just have this sort of overwhelming feeling of being very small and unimportant, but also sort of connected to to everything else. And for me, for a long time, those were sort of the things that, I guess, quenched my, my spiritual thirst, and those were kind of the experiences that I would type to attempt to pursue. So I enjoyed to hike, and I enjoyed to go fishing, and I enjoyed to get out into nature and go out west with my friends and do those types of things. And uh, as a consequence of that, I mean, I guess if you also kind of, and then so, the, so you put that aside, and that's something that for whatever reason in the back of my mind, I consider it to be just very, very important. 
But then on the other side, um, just sort of having grown up with um, a family that had high expectations for me, there was this aspect of, you know, you sort of have to be a careerist and you have to succeed and you have to do well and your career is very important and you have to work hard. And so I always tried to, I always, I guess I was doing it subconsciously more so than anything, but I was also just sort of trying to meld those two things together. And so... Uh, what I ultimately did was, so long story short, is uh, I ultimately said, you know, I, I'm working as a lawyer, I'm working as a prosecutor, that's meaningful work. Let me go and get, uh, let me see if I can convert this into like an environmental law thing. So I got an LLM, which is a master's degree yeah. in environmental law. Just, I, I want to ask a little question with regards to that, and that is, you know, I grew up kind of on the North Shore as well. Did the movie uh, Ordinary People years ago, just the pressure, I mean, they're, you're, you're expected to like do this, that, and the other. I mean, yeah. I, I was, you know, I I think my dad, I, I try to not do that with my kids. I, I try to convey to them that I want them to go to heaven. You know what I mean? And, and just just follow Christ. That's what's most important, right? Yeah, that's not how I was raised. Yeah, myself either. <laughs> so let stretch the imagination. <laughs> right. So so you wound up being a lawyer for uh, an environmental agency, right? Natural Resources Defense Council. Yeah. And you probably know as much about what the church teaches on the environment and um could probably articulate it better than just about anybody being a Catholic and being somebody that has not totally, you know, said, oh, the church is wrong on that issue. So could you help us understand um, what does the church teach? I know that the Pope wrote the, uh, and he didn't write, he wrote a book, and not an encyclical, on the issue. Uh, that's Pope Francis. And um, we, we hear it all the time in different churches, you know, the, about the Catholic's response to the environment. And a lot of times when that's an intention, you see a bunch of people, you know, saying good grief. <laughs> and so tell us, what, what, is, what is it about the environment? What are, as Catholics, what are we supposed to believe? And, and uh, help us understand that. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, uh, my understanding, and I'm not a theologian, and I'm not a climatologist, and I'm not a theologist, so with that disclaimer aside, um, my understanding is that most of, uh, is that much of sort of the uh, a Catholic's relationship with the environment will stem from Genesis, where our job, which is what he, which is what the good Lord um uh, imposed upon Adam and Eve, which was their job was to protect and to till the garden. So, uh, you know, the, so the idea is that we have a responsibility as Christians to protect God's creation. And we were given dominion over it and not dominion to act imperiously and not dominion to exploit or to take uh, or to use for our own selfish ends, but dominion in that we are, con we, are, we are in control of it such that for the purposes of using our creativity as human beings to protect it. So uh, the problem with uh, the environmental movement is that it is so off-putting to many people, especially who are conservatives, whose first job as conservatives is to quote unquote conserve. I mean, that's ultimately, I think, what what we're saying, what I'm saying as a conservative politically. And of course, as a Catholic, you have to have an uneasy relationship with both political parties. Uh, I align. Myself, I agree. I, I agree. I align myself. Uh, from a more conservative standpoint. Right, neither party is Catholic. Right, right. And Teddy Roosevelt was pro was the first great environmentalist in the United States, and right. he was a Republican. Right. But the whole idea is we, we have to stand for what is and what's sort of been given to us. And so everybody reads the Pope's encyclical uh, to see if the Pope agrees with them. Yeah. You know, nobody reads the Pope's encyclical right, right, right. to see if they maybe can learn something right. or change their heart or change well, their Well, I think mind. the part of the problem is that the Holy Father, the one that we have now, he's he says things a lot oftentimes that are not consistent with the uh, the teachings of the catechism in the you know, the historical teachings of the church. And he may not he may or may not say things, but it's reported that way at least. And and we know what the catechism yeah. says and we know what he's saying is yeah. not is not right. So that that becomes a problem. So so immediately I think he, whatever he says is, is discounted. I think by some. I think so too and uh right. And I think there's a there's a certain faction in the Catholic faith that discounts it. Uh I I, I do my very best not to. But what I would say is that if you look at the Pope's encyclical Laudato Si, and I don't speak Italian, so if I'm mispronouncing that, forgive me. Um, but the the, per, the the footnote of the person who's quoted most is John Paul II. 
okay? And so he spends the first chapter of the encyclical talking about sort of many of the things that are wrong with our environment that are a result of sort of human sin and human frailty. And he talks about climate change, but he really doesn't dwell on climate change. So I think that's the big one, is the climate change. I think that's the one that that where people, there's definitely a divide. Um, What is it? Is climate change, I mean, what are your thoughts on it? I don't know. I mean, like I said, I'm not a climatologist, um, but I don't I don't think that we can just discount uh, many of the findings of legitimate scientists. And the problem is, is that there's such a um, there's such a co-opting and corruption of a lot of the science where many of these other ideas which don't necess- which aren't human focused. I mean the problem one of the problems with the environmental movement is that it it seems to sort of have a lowly view of the human person, you know? Like they're sort of saying like we need less people. Right, and, right, exactly. Uh, and when you take that philosophy on, I mean that's a really dangerous philosophy yeah. to sort of elevate let's say right. climate or to elevate some inanimate object which is of course important because it is part of God's creation, but to inan- but to to elevate that over the importance of a human being, I think it's a really dangerous thing to be doing and can lead to a lot of problems, both in terms of thinking, but also in terms of consequences, especially with policy. So my, so w- from from what I understand about the client, is the, is the problem is not that, so many people will say like, hey, look, uh, if you go back, you know, two million years, the climate was four degrees warmer Celsius, whatever the case may be. The problem is not so much that the planet is warming or that it's or that it's cooling. The problem is the rate at which the planet is warming, which is not going to give cultures, species, uh, ecological systems the necessary time that they would otherwise have over a longer period of warming or cooling, the time to adapt, which can, of course, have... Um, which can, of course, have problems. Yeah, I mean, uh, what I would say is that, you know, for those of you that are out there listening and you think that it's only AOC that's, you know, talking about these things, you know, my, my middle son graduated Marquette a few years ago, and he's telling me, you know, how can you tell me that the planet's going to be around in 40 years, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And he learned that at Marquette. And so the Catholic schools all across the country, you know, have these people that are, uh, you know, pulling the alarm bells. And, and I'll give you my thoughts on it, and then you tell me if I'm wrong. I think that um, that there is an idolatry that goes on with, with, with the planet Earth, first of all. Um, there's only one creature that was created likeness and image of Jesus Christ, of God, and that, that is us, human beings. It's not animals, you know, and I love my dogs, but that, it's not animals. And um, the worship of anything other than uh, our Lord, you know, the three person of the Trinity, is, is idolatry, and, and that's what's going on, first of all. Second of all, um, there's been changes in the planet throughout history, you know, cyclical changes. And what's going on um, now? I mean, I, I don't know. You know, it's, it's another cyclical change. And I don't see this pl- climate change as a real thing. I, re- I really don't. Um, but I'm not, I don't pretend to understand it well enough. I just think that the people that are proponents of it, it many times have yet to make an argument to convince me that it's real and go ahead now i was just going to say like i think you're right uh in the sense that much of the pushback to the idea of climate change is a result of the outsized and hysterical statements of many people who are making them especially when you hear things like the world is going to end in 40 years or the pop- human population is too big where it can't be supported uh and so there is so much anxiety in the minds of many of these people who tout uh, climate change is their first and foremost issue that a lot of times you react against it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So you end up no, saying no, exactly. Like, you know what? I don't know a ton. I like, I, and what I think what you're saying is I know BS when I hear it. So right. I don't know. A t- I'm I'm not reading the international reports on all the climate stuff, and I'm not. I haven't been following all of the weather patterns and all the rest of it. But I know what you're saying isn't necessarily true, and I know that I don't agree with that. And so therefore, it's sort of this binary. And I guess my point would be is that you know, th- is that like what does the devil do? He always gives you two false choices when there's another third option which is available and i think pope francis to his credit uh has sort of 
is what what he's and the problem is is that he sort of put his imprimatur on the climate change yeah uh, debate going on is saying like there is climate change and so i think that has undermined his position with a lot of catholics as well but that's really not what he's saying what what he's talking about is sort of the ecology of the human being and how we're all connected and i can give you just a real quick example sure so mike you never learn about the amount of waste that you produce as a human being until you have children Mm -hmm. so i have four kids and just the amount of nonsense and frivolous items that they acquire use for five minutes and then throw away is absurd and like that's what he's talking about is this sort of idea of throwaway culture but if you actually take the time to look at the little whatever it is that your kid has whatever little plastic trinket it actually is there is another human being that in china or in vietnam or cambodia or india or europe or wherever the case may be that actually had this and made it like this was their output at some point during the day and we're taking it and we're just sort of and my kid is taking it and as kids do without thinking they use it they don't like it they throw it away it's a piece of plastic, so it's going to exist forever. And so I think what he's saying is that we have to be conscious of the interconnectivity of all of us on this earth. We have to be conscious of the fact that while creation itself, a fish, a cat, is not as important as a human being stamped with the image and likeness of God, while all of that is true, you still can't use your sin, selfishness, unthinkingness to corrupt what is creation and what it was ultimately meant to do. So I agree with all of that. You know, Pat, I, I think that highlights something that um, when we were talking earlier about who do you pick as prosecutors, who does Pat Kennelly as the head state's attorney choose to hire? And you went through some of the criteria you're looking for. And we're living in a world where it's always uh, popular to say, let's reform the police. Let's reform the justice system. Let's, and we're constantly, quote unquote, reforming. And... The reality is we've pushed it too far in many, many instances. And the reality is human nature is sinful. And the more you have sinners in police departments, or we're all sinners, but the more you have people that, that um, a sinful culture, the more likely you're going to be corrupt. And, that is not, and you don't reform that because they'll find a way around it. And you and I talked a little bit about... Um, with regards to corporations before we got on the air, and, we, and I agreed with you 100% that the general nature of an American corporation today is sinful. And you go back to, you know, my dad was a labor lawyer, and corporations shared their profits much more than they do today uh, with, with the worker. You know, when my dad was a labor lawyer, 50% of America families had uh, he had a labor uh, union member inside the house. And they only exist in public sector right now, and we know that unions have pushed, pushed it too far. But nonetheless, it was a different mindset. The corporation was going to take care of its people, and it did take care of its people much more so than it does today. And you and I said this, and this is where I think you, you're right, that sometimes the right versus the left, it's not that. And it's the same thing with being Catholic. It's not... You know, it's not Republican, Democrat. Corporations, many corporations, we've seen this, where they get the data and they decide whether or not it's cheaper to dump these toxins into the environment, which are potentially cancerous related, and kill off a whole bunch of people in the process of doing it. Young children wind up getting horrible diseases and everything else, versus to make the product the right way, but, but more expensively. And they choose... They choose the first, and that's a reality. So we can't sit there and act like, you know, you know, you're either an environmental wacko, or you know, you're somebody that doesn't care about the. You know, you you don't want to be either of those. No, definitely not. And I mean, you're talking about just these perverse incentives, which a lot of people face in all, all in all walks of life. But um, yeah, like when it, it just sort of getting back to the environment. The, the people left of center have so thoroughly taken this issue, corrupted it, and then mixed it together with a bunch of other ideas which people right of center find odious that it's impossible to tease out the environmental issues in and of themselves from the broader point. And so there are a number of organizations who are right of center that also 
that also want there to be um, a, just common sense reform yeah. and understanding with regard to, hey, how do we protect God's creation? How Everybody wants clean water. Nobody wants ecological collapse. Uh, you know, if there is, you know, if, putting aside for the fact that there is climate change, can we have a group of sober people actually sit down and actually debate the numbers and the science as opposed to as opposed to public relations yeah. people running out some little kid, Greta Thunberg, to start crying. Right, and, you know, right. Like it's, yeah. it's enough. What a nauseating sight that was. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I was I got back from California a few weeks ago, and I, I just remember when I was a kid always going out there in the, the smog and everything else. It doesn't exist anymore. So we do have cleaner air. We are doing some good things. And all of these changes were not horrible changes because as you said you know we do have a, a job to be good stewards of the environment but we shouldn't worship it let me just ask you a, a, about a few things uh, your thoughts on a few things related to this environment um, in, by the way Pat the entity that he worked for as an environmental lawyer would go after corporations that were polluters oh, yeah. so um, you know what is it with this energy efficient? You know, we, we seem to get worse products with, with that. So energy efficiency is actually, like if you're talking about energy and you're talking about the cheapest form of it. So this is what I did at the Natural Resources Defense Council is we would essentially sue utility companies so that they would create more energy efficiency offerings for all of their consumers. And utility companies are tough. They are, they're, 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 there's, they, they are half government, half private, and because of that, they enjoy all kinds of benefits and basically uh, have to do what they want to do when they want to do. But that's neither here nor there. But so, what, so, but if you look at energy efficiency, that is the cheapest form of energy. So if you say, okay, if we're going to use, let's say, a coal power plant, how many kilowatt hours can we get uh, from a coal from a from a from a coal plant in terms of energy? It costs this amount, and then you say, okay, let's do a natural gas plant. How much energy can we get from a natural gas plant, and how much and how much money does it cost? And then you compare that with, well, let's just take let's just let's just create a product and get it out there, or let's do something with regard to the grid that's going to save energy. It's significantly less than all the other forms of producing energy, whether it be wind, natural gas, coal, nuclear, or whatever. And so, and so, you, and so, and so, you're right. When you have bad products, and when uh, and when people aren't taking as much pride in what they're actually producing, and we're spitting out all of these products, which are which are using so much more energy than they otherwise would, that. It, that it, that not only is bad for the environment, but it's also more expensive from a sort of energy uh, grid standpoint. So let me ask you this: Should we be preaching to not have, uh, be not not be fruitful and multiply, as uh, it's said in the Bible and as the Catholic Church has historically taught? I don't think so, and I think most of the predictions with regard to us running out of food have ended up on the dust heap of of history a long time ago but of course not i mean i got i have four kids um i think that right now what you're now starting to see is that especially in countries like uh, the united states as well as many european countries and even china is that the real coming crisis is ultimately the fact that we are not being fruitful and multiplying and that we do not have enough people to replace those who are moving out and that's fundamentally what your kids are is they're replacements right. for you, you right know, like right <laughs> exactly so uh, should we be paying farmers to not grow crops? No, I mean, come on, that's absurd. But we do it. And um, should we uh, be, you know, proponent of, of these, uh, these new Green New Deal legislation that's before Congress? No, because, you know, I think, like, I'm a, just a big believer in local government. I love local government, and I'm a huge believer in local government. The more you begin to centralize things such as grids, such as criminal justice systems, uh, such as uh, social uh, reform programs, uh, the worse these things become. And so when you say that, hey, we're, go we're going to turn over to the federal government our entire energy grid so that some bureaucrat in Washington or a group of bureaucrats in Washington can at their whim sort of make determinations about things that affect me on a daily basis, especially when I'm going to turn a light switch on or turn the heat on in the winter. I mean, that is not that is not good policy, and it creates more problems than it solves. Should we be drilling for oil? 
Yeah, I mean, fo- look, fossil fuel. I mean, ask somebody in a third world country uh, what they think of fossil fuels. I mean, if are the the miracle that is, you walk into a room, any room in this country. I mean, and and you you don't accept this as the miracle for what it is, and the light switch actually work. Uh, is a result of fossil fuels. So the whole idea is that it's all comes, it's all stems from a balance. In that, uh, you know, there, in terms of the human misery that we've prevented, in terms of people being cold and people starving and having enough food by using fossil fuel. Of course, there's a trade-off, okay? And and there's always going to be a trade-off with using something. But you just have to be thoughtful about the balance. And I think again, going back to the encyclical i think that's what pope francis is saying is that we ju- is that before you just throw something away or before you use something let's be thoughtful about it let's recognize the trade-offs and to the extent that we can minimize you know any of the side effects and downsides why don't we hear from the media that uh this russia expansion with the ukraine and beyond potentially is funded by uh gas and oil because we don't drill for it I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I think that I think the media, you know, it seemed as though uh, a few years ago when we had energy independence that our that that had a stabilizing effect, not only on uh, prices, but also our reliance on uh, other countries who are odious, you know. So if if we are not going to produce it ourselves, we're going to be reliant on uh, theocracies and we're going to be reliant on uh, tyrannical governments to fill the breach um, and from a moral standpoint that seems problematic but also from an energy policy standpoint that seems problematic exactly so should we be building uh, electric cars should we be moving in that direction I think so I mean you know the so like there there is a downside to fossil fuels and I believe it again I think if you cut away if you if you take climate science and you cut it away there are downsides and there will be negative effects and human suffering caused by climate change. I, 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 that, that, that's what I think based on my respectful and Isn't aren't view. electric cars potentially more injurious to the environment than uh, gas-driven? Are you talking about the mining yeah, exactly. of it? And yeah, I mean, I know that's been widely uh, reported on. And again, um, there it's not it's not just a question of environmental damage with some of these mines. It's also a question of uh, how you're treating many of the people who are, you know, the ones who have to risk their life, limb, and safety to acquire these things. I haven't done a full analysis on on the trade-offs, but again, a a a, a People of goodwill can examine these issues and try to maximize the benefit and limit the and limit the trade-offs. I just don't know that as a society or as a culture we're very good at doing that or solving uh, the problems which are before us. Yeah. So you know, in terms of race, we've often seen the the tag uh, race hustler because all the people that make all the money off of, of quote unquote racism, the Farrakhans, the Jesse Jacksons, and, and others. We, we have global warming or, or climate change hustlers, it seems, and they're driving around in Lear jets and what have you. What uh, Should we be giving them a, a, an audience? Well, no. I mean, the, I think one of the critiques of, um, let's say, the, the, the jet-setting climate alarmists is that, um, you know, cake for me but not for thee you know what i mean so right. uh i'm gonna have as many kids as i want to have and i'm gonna live in a mansion and my carbon footprint is going to be 10 times yours but don't worry i'm this philosopher king who is with my uh you know powerful intellect is steering the world from a policy standpoint into a better place um you know of course that kind of thing is uh I, it's not only it's not only it's hypocritical and it's just horrible optics and i don't know why they continue to do those kinds of things yeah you're listening to pat Kennelly, the state's attorney in mchenry county on wsfi catholic radio wndz 88.5 fm and 750 am i'm mark curran your host this show is cross-examination uh pat i'd like to uh you know we're, we're winding down I'd, li- I'd like to close it out with maybe some of your thoughts on where do we go as a as a country, as as Catholics, uh, what needs to be done in order to save America? And, and if you have any questions for me, feel free to fire away as well. 
We'll wrap it up with that. Ah, man. I mean, I, I don't have the answer to that. I guess what, what um, in my, uh, so, you know, I sort of came back to the faith in my early 30s, and I'm 44 now. Um, and if it was not for the Catholic Church, um, I would not have uh, my wife. I would not have my four beautiful children. I would not have the relationships that I have, not only with uh, the community in which I live, but the family in which God blessed me with. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's taken me so long to figure out one sort of key point, which is uh, f- from all appearances, and I think this is true with sort of all individuals, like when you're just looking at sort of what the what what's coming out of people and what their outputs are, a lot of times it's a question of mixed motives, you know what I mean? So what might appear to actually be, and I think this is so true in the political arena where you have so many people who ostensibly are doing things which you applaud or which you say, wow, how wonderful of them, they must be a good person, but their intentions really are not there. For me, the, what ultimately, need, for me on a day-to-day basis, what I have to align are my intentions with my actions. And I have to make sure that my intentions are pure and that my intentions are good. And from that will come, uh, I think, prudent and hopefully good and helpful actions for fellow man. And I, I really do think that there's no policy, there's no government, there's there's no, uh, you know, there's, there's no um, uh, pamphlet that can be circulated. There's no political ideology that's ultimately going to save a country. Rather, it starts with the human heart and it starts with changing human hearts. And if we have enough pe- men and women of goodwill in this country who are wise and who are prudent in their judgments, uh, then and only then are we going to have a functioning country. So are our best days behind us? Maybe for a generation or so. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that our best definitely. days are behind us at this moment in time that we're going to face a lot of suffering. And i got to tell you something. I, I think that one of the reasons that, that I'm encouraged is when a Pat Kennelly has four children. And what I'm encouraged by is when a Pat Kennelly is the state's attorney of the fifth largest county in America. Because Pat Kennelly brings a, uh, a moral, a decent, a good perspective to that. And I think we've seen, re- with regards to not just the White House, but with regards to all around America, where when those offices wind up in the wrong hands, anybody could be victim. And we saw it with Pat's press, uh, predecessor, Lou Bianchi, who was a who was a good Catholic man, and he was indicted as the sitting state's attorney uh, by you know forces th- that were out to you know to bring him down. And I think that the, the potential for that in the future, if we don't have Pat Canelli's holding those offices, is I, I mean it's it's a really frightful perspective there's a part of me you know i'm going to be 60 that says bring it on i'll spend the last x number of years in jail or prison you know what i mean i need to be purified anyways and i can pray more and 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 god will lift up my family as a result like he did to my patron saint uh thomas more but i think you know there's the other side that agrees with a lot of people that we just don't want to live in this world where evil is 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 winning and is growing in all aspects and even like the chicago mayoral race you know we got paul vallis who's greek orthodox but he is so in bed with the uh abortion industry and the lgbtq agenda and everything else that you know we're we're provided two horrible choices and it's a frightening future yeah i was just going to say you know i think lou uh and you were two of my uh, political, I, let's say, spiritual fathers. I mean, when I, I, when I was a nobody, uh, when I first ran for state's attorney, I came out of nowhere. Nobody knew who I was. All I had been doing was working at the state's attorney's office. And so, when you go to, when you are sort of working in political circles, you meet a lot of people who are looking at you and they're sort of computing in their head, like, who is this human biped, and how can they help me? You know what I mean? Right. And if it appears as though they are not able to help you, then they just sort of brush you aside. I, Lou Bianchi uh, brought me out to breakfast with uh, you, Mark, yeah. and I just remember how sincerely you sat down and uh, how uh, it, it it was it was something that I had not seen before, which is a person who earnestly wanted to help me and was willing to uh, do s- literally anything in your power uh, to do so. And uh, you've been a friend to me politically. Oh, you're a great guy from it's the very easy. beginning. 
But uh, and you and you and Lou also taught me that being in politics is not about making friends and it's not about being liked, but it's but it's about doing what's right. And if you're really focused and you're really taking up policy decisions where you're going, where you, you are doing what you truly believe is right, you are going to necessarily be picking a fight with people um, and there's going to be conflict and you have to be able to stand in it. And so that was another thing that I learned from both you and Lou. Amen. Thank you, Patrick. You've been listening to WSFI Catholic Radio, 88.5 FM, 750 AM, WNDZ. The show is Mark Kern, cross-examination, and Patrick Kennelly is with us. And we usually start in prayer, but I want to close us out in prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Let's call upon the intercession of St. Thomas More, patron saint for lawyers and government officials for Patrick Kennelly and others out there, and we'll call upon Our Lady, the Blessed Mother, the patron saint of America. Pray for us. Pray for us.